prayer that Jesus is giving to the Father there. This is uh, verses 6 through 19, and these are the words of God. I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have known that all things which you have given me are from you, for I have given them the words which you have given me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I came forth from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours, and all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to you, Holy Father, Keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me I have kept, and none of them is lost, except the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world." I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified by the truth. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Let's ask his blessing. Father, as the scripture says here, your word is truth. And so, Father, sanctify us in the preaching of your word, and be pleased in the preaching and in the receiving of your word. Open our hearts and minds by your Holy Spirit, and do a great work in your children. For we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Please be seated. It's really a crazy passage if you think about it. Jesus is praying to God the Father. Or another way to look at it is God is praying for his people. That's, that's crazy. I mean, think about it for a second. Every, every religion has a God, and most religions have, adhe- have their adherents pray to those gods in some fashion. It's hard to think of any religion that has a God, some kind of deity, where there is not some kind of right that is to take place where you offer up your prayers, you offer up your praise, You confess your sin. You do different things, and you speak to God. You pray to God. But here we see that our Lord and Savior, who is God, prays for us. What other religion do you find that in? Where God is praying for his people. God is lifting up prayers for his people. And in this, we actually also see this wonderful gift of the Trinity, of the truth of the Trinity, If there was not three persons in the Godhead, if there were not three persons in the Godhead, then there would have not been anybody for God to talk to, to communicate with in eternity past before his creation. And that's why some people, anti-Trinitarians and and those who aren't thinking, will say that God created the world so he could have some friends. He really wanted somebody to talk to. He was lonely. And and that's a lie from the pit, actually. God in eternity past... Father, Son, and Holy Spirit enjoyed perfect communion and communication with one another. Jesus is doing with the Father right here in this passage in John chapter 17 what the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, has done forever. And that is talk to his Father. Talk to the first person of the Godhead. And so also the first person of the Godhead speaks to the second. 
And the third as well, as we saw in the call to worship, also intercedes on our behalf. There is, there is communication going on amongst all three persons of the Trinity. If there wasn't, then we would be doing things that the triune God, could, or that the God who was not triune, could not have been able to do for an eternity in the past, which makes absolutely no sense. And so here we see um, the, the, the gift and the beauty of the Trinity, but also this crazy idea that we have a God who prays for us, who prays for us. And as we listen to him pray, as we listen to the, him this, in this extended prayer in, in John 17, we learn some things about what he thinks of us, how he lifts us up to the Father, how he talks about us, how they talk to one another about us, how they talk to one another about you. God the Father and God the Son talk about you to one another. The eternal, omnipotent, omniscient, all-knowing God who knows all the, everything, uh, who knows the end from the beginning, talks about you at the throne of grace. You are known in that kind of way. And so he, we, we find here, we learn what he cares about, what concerns him with regard to us, what he wants most for us. All of you struggle at times in terms of your prayer life. What am I supposed to be praying about? And I've instructed you many times, take a look at the prayers of, of Paul, for instance, or follow the pattern of the Lord's Prayer. But here also we see what God is talking to the Father about with regard to his disciples. What concerns him about us and what he wants most for us and, and what he wants most for his heavenly Father with regard to us. We see his gracious intercessory care for us in the midst of this passage. In the first five verses, we saw um, God, uh, Jesus lifting up his prayers that he would be glorified and that the Father would be glorified in him. And now he turns and begins to pray particularly for these disciples. And um, by good and necessary consequences, we can understand that he is praying for all, disi all disciples. That will, he will go on and talk about that in the, in, in further in the prayer as well. But Jesus prays, and, and I want you to notice, first of all, in verses 6, 7, and 8, the way Jesus talks about these disciples. As the Son speaks to the Father about his disciples, the chosen one of the Father, the chosen ones, he knows that these 11 will stagger in their faith. He knows they've been asking him many questions showing that they don't understand all that is taking place. They're afraid about his departure. They're, they're concerned about what he's even talking about. They are, um, he, he knows that they've been staggering in that. They know that, he's going to, that they're going to scatter at his arrest. They know that he knows that one will even deny knowing him before the authorities. That, that's what Jesus knows about these disciples. And that's even what Jesus knows these disciples are about to do. And yet listen, listen about how he talks about them to the Father. He says they've kept the Father's word, verse 6. He says, they have known that all things the Father has given Jesus are from the Father. He knows that all the words that, that, that he has been giving to the disciples, he knows they know that they've come from the Father. He, he knows that they have received his words and know surely that Jesus came from the Father, verse 8, and even that the Father sent him, also in verse 8. He speaks, speaks very highly of these disciples. He speaks in this prayer before the Father, um, graciously and confidently that they, that they do know him. Not perfectly, 
the Spirit has not yet descended. Um, none, of, none of them are fully and completely sanctified. And yet as he lifts them up before the Father, as he prays for them, he, he's not ashamed of them at all. He, he lifts them up as, as the ones that God has chosen and the ones that he has cared for, the ones that he has taught. And he lifts them before the Father and makes these particular requests known with great confidence and grace. J.C. Ryle wrote about these verses. He says, the least degree of faith is very precious in his sight. Though it be no bigger than a grain of mustard seed, it is a plant of heavenly growth and makes a boundless difference between the possessor of it and the man of the world. Jesus has said, if you you had faith the size of a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, be removed and cast in the sea, and it would be. It's It's not the amount of your faith. It's not the strength of your faith. It's the object of your faith. Is your faith placed in the Son of God? Is your faith placed in Jesus Christ? Is your faith in His finished and complete work for you? His complete work for you? Are you resting on grace alone and in Christ alone? And all who are Christians and Orthodox will answer all my questions, and they'll say, yes, that's what I believe. But oftentimes inside you think to yourself as you go through life, but how well do I believe that? How well do I act like I believe that? And and there might be times if you were to consider, how is God the Father speaking about you to him? I mean, sorry, how is God the Son speaking to the Father? How is God the Son speaking to the Father about you? You might feel like you might be a little embarrassed to hear what that conversation might be like. But no. In Christ's righteousness and in his confidence for you, he speaks with grace and love and tenderness like a father our, our heavenly Father speaking, our, the, the, the Father of the new humanity, the Lord Jesus, he speaks tenderly of us in, in the counsels of God, just as you speak of your children with great confidence, fathers and mothers, even in the midst of the difficulties and the struggles of life. They're yours. They're yours and you speak well of them. You, 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 you believe the best for them in, in the grace and the love that, that Christ has given you for them even more so imperfectly. That's the way that Jesus is speaking. And the the key to this confidence, though, is in the very first sentence. Look at verse 6 again. The very first sentence, I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. I've manifested or revealed, revealed your name. If the Father has given them to Jesus... If the Father has given these people to Jesus, if the Father has given you to Jesus, that's it. Signed, sealed, delivered, as one great pop artist once said. It's it's a done deal. If, If the Father has given you to the Son... Then, as it says, in, as, as Jesus said in John 6, 39, this is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. And it's that kind of confidence that Jesus is now using as he speaks to the Father. If Christ has manifested or revealed the name of God to these men, their salvation is secure. So listen again. I have manifested, in this phrase he uses many, many times, but here I want you to notice this in the scripture, I've manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. When, when we pray the Lord's Prayer, we pray that um, hallowed be your name, which is not, we're not saying holy is your name. Um, watch your grammar here. It's may your name be hallowed. It's let your name be made holy and great. On earth as it is in heaven, we sing then, right? 
And, and so we want God's name to be holy, to be set apart, to be declared special, to be effective in its power and use. In uh, Proverbs 18.10, it says, The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run to it and are safe. So he's not just running to the Lord, but to the name of the Lord, to his character, to his power, to his plan, to his purpose. All of these things are wrapped up in his name, the name of God. You, we, we know God because his name has been manifest to us. Interesting how names are so important in the identification of people. You know, it, it says in Revelation that, that Jesus has written a name on a white stone for you, and only you and Jesus know it. That this will be revealed. But the sense is there's, this, there's a personal connection between you and Christ that's built into a name that he has given you. He has named you. So we know God because his name, his name has been manifest to us and we know his name. His righteousness is ours and it is perfect even though we are not yet sanctified. It's perfect because of Christ's righteousness and yet we are not yet sanctified, and so he continues to pray now. So he's lifted up you, he's lifted up his disciples, he's lifted up before the Father, and he has spoken to the Father, you gave them to me, I've taught them everything that you've told me to, they've received it as coming from you, they've received me as coming from you, and now I pray for them. And he prays for our preservation, verses 9 through 12, I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me. For they are yours, and all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. So Jesus prays for his disciples, and he makes a point of saying, I'm praying for my disciples, and I'm not praying for the world generally in this way. I'm praying for those whom you have given me. This does not diminish God's heart for the world, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. It does not diminish that, but it does, we, we do see that this prayer is clearly for his disciples particularly, and particularly as he's departing, and, he, and particularly as he departs but, let, but leaves them in a world, and in a world where he knows that will hate him. In verse 14, a little further, I've given them your word, and the world has hated them because they're not of the world, just as I am not of the world. He knows that what the world is about to do to him they will do to his, the, the world will do to his disciples as well. And Jesus said, you will be persecuted, for I've been persecuted. And they will persecute you because you bear my name. Um, and so he's praying for them in, in the midst of that, praying for their preservation. Interesting, he doesn't pray for their deliverance from the, from the world. He's leaving them in the world. He's leaving them for a work to be done in the world. So what's the preservation that he's, he's praying for? For them. Well, he's praying that God would keep them. Verse 11, now I'm no longer in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to you, Holy Father, keep through your name, There's, there it is again, keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. <coughs> this intercession continues on to this day for all his disciples, um, that is for us as well. And so this is particularly why I believe we, can, we know we can apply this prayer to us as well. In Romans chapter 8, so decades later, when Paul is writing to another group of people, the, the disciples now of Jesus Christ throughout the Roman Empire, he writes in the book of Romans, Who is he who condemns? 
It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. So we know that that Jesus Christ, when he's risen from the dead and and ascends to the Father's throne, one of the things that he does is pray for us. Now, he's he's writing in in this section in in Romans chapter 8, Paul is, where he he mentions that we're all like sheep um, led to the slaughter. And he's praying that, that if God has given us the Lord Jesus Christ, that, that of course he would withhold no good thing. And that nothing, life, death, principalities, powers, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God. That's the preservation. That's the preservation that he's promising to us. Hebrews 7.25 says as well, Therefore, he is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Again, Pastor Ryle says, the special intercession of the Lord Jesus is one grand secret of the believer's safety. He is daily watched and thought for and provided for with unfailing care by one whose eye never slumbers and never sleeps. When we sing Psalm 121, we should remember that what that's teaching you, what that is teaching us, is that God never slumbers or sleeps with regard to knowing you, knowing what's going on in your life, knowing his plans, knowing his, um, his care for you in the midst of all that is going on. He goes on, he says, they never perish because he never ceases to pray for them, and his prayer must prevail. Jesus teaches us to pray without ceasing. Um, Jesus teaches us to pray in a certain manner using the Lord's Prayer. Jesus teaches us to lift all of our requests before the Father, and then he shows us how. He shows us by example how. This prayer that is written out here in chapter 17 is a prayer we can think about praying for one another, praying for the other disciples, our brothers and sisters in Christ as well. And the prayer is that God would keep them. He would keep them in the midst of the world. Jesus kept them and lost none, save the son of perdition, he says, Judas. And Judas was not a mistake. Judas was not an accident. Judas wasn't like, you know, the batting average wasn't quite 1,000, but he almost got everybody. No, Judas had been selected according to the purposes of God, according to the scriptures that were given. Psalm 69 and Psalm 109 both speak and are quoted by the, by the apostles in Acts chapter 1, where they, where they are determining that we need to add back, we need to add, add another one to our midst so that there are 12 again. And in, in, in Acts chapter 1, they say, because it was written in the book of Psalms, let his dwelling place be desolate and let no one live in it and let another take his office. And they, they saw within these Psalms, I, I, I bet that Jesus had instructed them in this during the 40 days before his ascension, if not before, that these were, in fact, the, the scriptures that had foretold that Judas would, uh, would, would, betray, would betray Jesus and, that would, uh, and would be cast away. The son of perdition would be cast away. So, as he departs then, listen what he says. He says um, in verse 11 again, Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to you, Holy Father. It's not very many times that Jesus uses that phrase, Holy Father. I think maybe only one other time. Holy Father that he says. And I don't think holy here is arbitrary at all. It is the same word that is used to speak of our sanctification as well. So the word to sanctify is the word to make holy. 
So when we say holy, um, or, or the holy ones, or the saints, those are, uh, that's all from the same word, hagias. And in, if you just jump ahead to 17 through 19, this is where he says, sanctify them, make them holy by your truth. Your word is truth. And then and he says of himself in verse 19, for their sakes I sanctify myself that they also may be sanctified by the truth. So he's praying to the, to the sanctified one, the set apart one, the holy one, Father, that he, would, that he would keep them. He would keep them in that sanctification. Calling the Father then is, um, is calling on him to make us holy as well. His name, Holy Father, is the basis of Christ's appeal for us and his confidence for us. May the name of the God of Jacob defend you, uh, Psalm 20, and save me, O God, by your name. So again, it's this name that, that it's by the name of Holy Father that we have this confidence that he is saving us, protecting us, defending us. And so it's through the power of his name and being, being united in his name, kept in his name, that Jesus and you individually have confidence. It's the confidence that Jesus has that is the, is the basis for your confidence. Our confidence, think of it this way. A little, you, know, you see a little child and a strong father walking hand in hand as they walk across a dangerous road. And that father is holding on to that young boy's hand and the, and the young child is holding on to the father's hand as they cross this dangerous road our confidence as you're watching that is that child going to be saved is not in how well the child is gripping onto the father, right? But rather how strong and confident the grip is in the father of the child's hand. Our confidence should never be in how, how good are you holding on to God? That's not so good, right? There are lots of not so good days. There are lots of not so good moments. Our confidence, and as, as Jesus teaches us, is in how well is the Father holding on to you? How well is the Father holding on to you? Keep them, he says. You keep them, Father. Keep them. As they are out in the world, I want you protecting them, defending them, feeding and keeping them. So Jesus prays for our preservation but not only that, Jesus also prays that we might have his joy as protection in this world. So I think he wants us to have the same confidence that he has and the same joy in the midst of it all as well. Listen to verses 13 through 16. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. So um, he, he says here again about his, the joy. He says, verse 13, but now I come to you, these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I, I see this time and again, remind myself of it time and again, and I want to remind you. The joy of the Lord is not, first of all, the amount of joy you have for the Lord. The joy of the Lord is, first of all, the joy the Lord has in you. And that joy is immeasurable, eternal, everlasting, never changes, 
carries you. It's his joy over you that becomes our joy. Don't try to stir up joy within yourselves. I've tried it. It doesn't work very well. Receive the joy of the Lord, the joy he has over you. Let that overwhelm you. Let that overtake you. Let that grant you the confidence that he's keeping you, that he loves you, that he speaks well of you to the Father, that he's glad that you're among the number, that he has glorious purposes and intentions for you, that you that he, and that he is going to enjoy you for eternity, including instructing you and sanctifying you to enjoy him perfectly for eternity. So Jesus does not want us to leave the world, even though sometimes we might. Jesus does not want us to leave the world. Now, each one of us, he does have us depart when, the, when that perfect day and perfect time comes, in the perfect way. But the church, he doesn't want the church to depart. He's not looking for us to be raptured out of here. He wants us here. He wants us here doing, being sent, we'll see this in a minute, being sent to do just what he was doing. Just what he was doing. So he does not want, it leave us in, leave, want us to leave the world, even though that world hates us and always will hate us. In the midst of this evil, in the midst of this evil world, he does pray that God would keep us and that he would keep us from the evil one. As he taught us to pray in the uh, Lord's Prayer as well, do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil or the evil one. That can be translated either way. Just evil, but, but evil doesn't... Evil is not something that just kind of floats around. There's an evil one, and that evil one um, has his followers, and that evil one um, motivates and, and empowers in some ways those, the evil ones to do evil things. And so deliver us from that evil. Deliver us from that evil one is what we are to pray. And he prays here that God would keep us from that evil one. There is evil to be found in the world, and there's evil to be found in the flesh, and there's evil to be found in the devil. There's evil to be found out there. There's evil to be found in here. And there's evil to be found in the devil himself. But I think the emphasis here, because he's talking about the world, um, the emphasis here is on the world and the devil's influences upon us in the world, upon the church and the truth that we are preaching in the world. And, and Paul, speaking about this, tells us how we fight in 2 Corinthians 10. For though we walk in the flesh... We do not war according to the flesh, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Um, Paul, Jesus, Peter, everybody talks about we are in the midst of a war. We are in the midst of a great battle because Satan, having been cast down, having been thrown down from his throne, still wanders about like a roaring lion seeking whom he will devour. And Jesus prays for good reason, Lord, keep them and protect them and defend them. And we are told that we are to put on the armor of God, that we are to put on Christ, and that as we put on Christ, then the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but rather they are mighty in God, having put on Christ, for pulling down the strongholds, for standing against the evil, for being able to speak the truth out into this world around us. So, and, and so what do we fight with regard to this world? Well, the, the world um, and our... Uh, and our own flesh tempts us unto uh, worldliness, to, to, 
to living like there isn't a God, to, to seeking pleasure. Um, that, and, and there is real pleasure that can be found in worldliness. But it is a pleasure that fades and in the end condemns us. There's also hardships in the world, circumstances that inflict suffering and loss that will be without purpose or meaning outside of Christ. And, and this, your, your life feels like it doesn't have purpose or meaning when you're going through any kind of suffering or trial or difficulty and you don't believe that God is in the, work, in, in the, in the details of it. That he's working out his glory in you in the midst of it. And so this, this temptation um, is, is, again, oftentimes from without and within to fight against that evil, to fight against those lies that Christ is not, in fact, in charge. On the other hand, there is a joy, there is a deep joy that the Son has in his work and in our destiny and glory that he prays would sustain and protect and fill us. I'm not taking them out of the world, Father. As they're in the world, that world that hates them, that world that attacks them from without, from within, in the midst of that, I want them to know my joy, to know my joy in such a way that it keeps them. It, it keeps them with you. It keeps them with the confidence that you and I, Father, have. What is this joy? It is the joy that the, the son had as he went to the cross. Hebrews 12, 2, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. It is the joy, it's not our joy first, it is his, it's his joy. It is the joy the son had when he went to the cross, and it is the joy that he prays it would be given to us in full, there in verse 13. It is a joy Paul would command of us, rejoice in the Lord always, again I say, rejoice, and would himself enjoy in the midst of tribulations. Paul would say, my grace is sufficient for, uh, Jesus said to him, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. And then Paul says, therefore, most gladly I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when when I am weak, then I am strong. It is a joy that Jesus commands of us when we are persecuted. <clears throat> Matthew 5, blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad. When you're being persecuted, Jesus says, when they blaspheme you, when, when they say all kinds of evil things against you, when they, when they mistreat you, when they misrepresent you, rejoice, rejoice. Why? Well, we get a taste of it here when Jesus says, because great is your reward in heaven. God is watching and the reward for that persecution will be great. This is the joy of Christ. <coughs> it is the joy of the Son. It is a gladness that the desert has become the new bloom. In Isaiah 35, speaking of <coughs> this new age that we are now in, the wilderness and the wasteland shall be glad for them, and the desert shall rejoice and blossom as the rose. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice, even with joy and singing. Just as you are watching now in your gardens, the flowers begin to, to bloom and to come forth, and spring has come. Spring has begun to come forth. So in this gospel age... Jesus is watching, the Father is watching the spring of the new humanity coming forth, growing and, and growing more and more fruitful, more and more bountiful. 
More and more spread over all of the earth. That, that is what God is watching. He just says it's like being in a desert and watching the spring come forth. And it's with great gladness and pleasure that we watch, that the Father is watching, and he, and, and he and encourages us to join in that joy with him. It is the joy, it is joy because of what God is doing in and through all that is going on, all the trials of our lives. My brethren, James says, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. That you may be mature, that you may have the same confidence. Why do we not have this joy? We don't have this joy because we don't have the confidence that Jesus has that the Father's good work is being worked out. We don't have the confidence that Jesus has that this world is going to be saved. We don't have the confidence that Jesus has that the Father is answering his prayers, answering them perfectly with regard to our lives. And so, and so we must join with, with Jesus in asking the Father to keep us, to overflow us with his joy, to grant us his confidence, his faith that the Father is working all things for good. It is a, it, and, and this is a joy... He doesn't pray for the world to have this joy because the world can't have this joy because this joy is the fruit of the Holy Spirit and only those who have the Holy Spirit can have this joy. Only those who have the Holy Spirit can have this confidence. Only those who have this joy can understand this truth. This, this Holy Spirit, this fruit of the Spirit that is at work in you is springing forth an abundance of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and so forth. This is the joy of God all over and through his people. Alexander McLaren writes, The only cheerful Christianity is a Christianity that draws its gladness from deep personal experience of communion with Jesus Christ. If we abide in Christ, his joy will abide in us and our joy will be full. So there's the secret for that joy. Abide in Christ. You must have communion with Christ. You must be united to, in, with him and, and then and pursue, allow him to cultivate and bring forth that joy and confidence. So, it's prayer for our preservation. It's prayer for our joy and protection, a joy that is a protection in the midst of the world. And finally, it is a, it is a prayer for our maturation, for our sanctification, for our being made more and more into the image of Jesus. Verse 17, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. All of the scripture above <clears throat> is necessary to reveal and partake of what God has for us. And so Jesus prays for our sanctification by the word of his truth. To be sanctified... To be sanctified is to be set apart for holy purposes. So don't think of being sanctified or being a holy one as um, like um, all of a sudden you're kind of radiating like a lot of lights coming out of you or you know, that's what it must mean to be sanctified. Somebody's polished you up real well. Um, there, there is a radiance that comes forth, but the first part of sanctification is you've been taken out of the world and you've been set here in Christ for holy purposes well, then you're going to probably need to be cleaned up a bit, aren't you? Right? But the, and the whole process now of you being made glorious is this work, ongoing work of God for your sanctification. 
So it's not to be set apart necessarily from the world's troubles, though. <laughs> You're still stuck right here with the world, flesh, and the devil. It is to be in those troubles and to be in the midst of those troubles for holy purposes. I, I quote here from the Westminster Confession of Faith on sanctification. It says, they who are once effectually called and regenerated, that's you and I, if you're in Christ, having a new heart and a new spirit created in them, are further sanctified, really and personally, through the virtue of Christ's death and resurrection by his word and spirit dwelling in them. The dominion of the whole body of sin is destroyed, and the several lusts thereof are more and more weakened and mortified, <clears throat> and they more and more quickened and strengthened in all saving graces to the practice of true holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. You must be perfected. <clears throat> you have been perfected in Christ, and you must be perfected in your sanctification. And, and Jesus has promised that, in fact, that is exactly what he is doing between now and your entrance into heaven. But Jesus is not praying for an easy life. <clears throat> what am I supposed to pray for? What do I want to pray for? I want to pray for an easy life. I just want to pray for an easy life. That's the first thing I want. I want everything to just go really, really nice. Where is that in here? I can't find it in chapter 17. He doesn't pray for you for an easy life. He's praying for a holy life. He's not praying for a pleasant, simple life. Your life is going to be very complex, full of all kinds of twists and turns you never expected. Jesus isn't praying for just a simple life, checklist, chick, 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 everything's going exactly according to plan. That doesn't happen either. He's praying for a life full of joy, of his joy, a confident joy in the midst of a, of a life of bearing his cross, of bearing one's cross. He's praying for a life full of his joy, a confident joy that God will complete, he promises, that, 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 he will, that he will complete that which he has begun, both in our lives individually. Paul says that he's confident that what Christ has begun, he will complete until the day of Lord Jesus. What God has begun, he will complete until the day of the Lord Jesus. That it will be both in our lives and in the world as well. Look around the world. It doesn't look so easy. It doesn't look so nice and peaceful. And it doesn't look like everything's going according to what our plans are. But what, what does the Lord say? Habakkuk 2.14, we saw this last, last Lord's Day as well. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Bet on it. Bet on it. John 3.17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but rather that the world might, through him might be saved. Jesus came to accomplish. What did we sing in Psalm 110? The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand, sit there. Until I made all your enemies a footstool. Paul takes that verse in 1 Corinthians 15. It says that's exactly what is going on now. And that's why the resurrection hasn't come yet. Because God is still put, making all of his enemies um, of Christ at, at, at Christ's feet. And when that's done, then Christ will return physically right here. Then there will be the final resurrection. Because then and only then the final enemy will be taken care of, which is death. But the fact that things look complicated right now. The, thing, the, the fact that the plans don't look like the, they, they would go if you were writing the script does not mean that they are not going. They are going. And what, what Jesus is praying to the Father is grant them confidence and my joy that my work, my work has accomplished exactly, exactly what we have determined beforehand is going to accomplish. This world's going to be saved. These people are going to be sanctified. 
They are going to be brought into perfect, holy glorification so that you, Father, will be glorified. That's what's going on in this prayer. And that's better. That's better than praying for an easy life. Learn that. Discipline yourself. That's better than just praying for an easy, simple life. So, he, so Jesus, God, the Son, prays for you. I, I, you need to not get over that. That's just crazy. Jesus prays for you. He prays for your preservation. He prays for his joy over you and in you as a protection. <coughs> he prays for your sanctification. He knows those sins. He knows those struggles. He knows those things that need to be mortified still in you by name. He knows them. And he prays to the Father with regard to them. And finally, Jesus prays for our mission our mission in the world, 18 and 19. As you sent me in the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself, set apart myself for the work that I'm about to accomplish, the atonement for all sins, that they also may be sanctified, set aside to, to declare that message, to take that message to all the world by the truth. In this confidence, Jesus prays that we would be sent by the Father just as he was sent. He states that he is setting himself apart, sanctifying himself, so that we also would be set apart and sent. This is what happens, Matthew tells us at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, to the disciples, to these apostles. Jesus comes and says, all authority has been given to me. I have accomplished it all. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. It's all mine. Go therefore, and he sends them. Because that is true, go now and make disciples of all the nations. I'm praying for all of them. He will go on to explain that in the rest of this prayer. I'm praying for all of them. You go now and tell them I'm king, I'm Lord, and, and they need to come, submit themselves, bow the knee, and become my friends through the atoning work that I've done on the cross. God had predestined the end from the beginning. <clears throat> but think of it. So this was all according to God's plan. And God had predestined the end from the beginning, but this did not make Christ's coming, suffering, and dying unnecessary or irrelevant. You see, it could not happen, it could not happen that in the councils of eternity past, that God had determined how he would save those who rebelled. And that he would, had determined that he would save them through an, the atoning work of Jesus Christ. His blood would be shed. And then, well, now that we have the plan and now we understand it doesn't really need to happen, right? No, no. Not only did the plan, the predetermined plan, have to be planned, it had to happen. Now, that's really important. Jesus really had to be sent. And the world needs to be saved. And how's the world going to be saved? Jesus is sending you. Jesus is sending us. Now, we, we're told that the number of the elect are already determined before the, before the end of time. Right? The number, number of the elect are already determined before the, uh, before the beginning of time, sorry. And, and so you would say, well, if God's already determined all who elect, can I just pray for that easy life again? I mean, it's all going to take place according to his plan anyway. But see, Jesus didn't say, well, it's already been planned. How you're going to save people, do I really need to go? No, no, son. You really need to go. That's what we're going to do. And you really need to go. We need, really need to go. We are sent just as Jesus was sent. So in the same way, so never allow, never allow yourself to think that God's sovereignty makes your witness optional or irrelevant. Christ has sent you to your family, 
to your neighborhood, to your workplace, and he has sovereign and good purposes. Look at this troubled world in our day, and it is a troubled world. And God knew you'd be there at just that time, in just that place, to speak just this truth to those people, to those systems, to those governments, to those institutions. He knew it. We were made for just this time. He has answered Jesus' prayer. And here we are. And we have been sent. And this, here we are, is the answer to this prayer. We've been sent. So we lift up the prayer that God would preserve us, grant us his joy, make us his disciples, sanctified to be sent and truly be the kind of witness that he's called us to be in this world today. And amen, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, hear our prayers. Better than that, hear your son's prayers for us and grant our requests. Father, give these, my brothers and sisters, greater assurance of their salvation, your care for them in this life, your purposes for them, and lead them into greater holiness and joy. And send us, send us, all of us, all that you have to the generations of disciples to proclaim the victory of Jesus and the gospel of eternal life and forgiveness of sins to everyone who believes. For the sake of Jesus our Lord, to the glory of his name, and amen. Let's turn and respond. Turn to number 666.